This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Pubs are open over here, Steve. I know. I've been fucking devastated looking at all you UK bas- UK-based bastards. Yeah. Uh, you have to sit outdoors. You're cold. But our pubs are open, so pints... Pints are flowing. Pints are back. Pints are back. I'm so jealous. I mean, yeah. what what are they like? How, how have they been over the last year? Are they okay? I mean... <laughs> Describe what it was like, I guess. The sun was bright and the air was crisp. The pub called like a siren song. I couldn't believe. Was this really it? The winter's wait had been so long. Indoors was closed by rule of law, but beer gardens were open and fair. My eyes did water with what I saw. Libations flowing for all to share. Like a lover lost to time and strife, the plague doth took her away. Apart and distant, to do what's right, but now pints are here to stay. Pints on pints on pints on pints. You o'erflow my heart, spill into joyous days and nights, forevermore, never. Apart. So yeah, it was grand. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just too much. I just can't. Oh. <sighs> I did see a bunch of dickheads in London pouring Guinness into bottles, though. <laughs> oh God, yeah, there's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of that kind of, a lot of sins committed, Steve. So like it it goes from what you just described all the way over to that shit. (laughs) Yeah, that's the spectrum. I'm much happier over my side. Uh, I know that was a silly poem, but the last verse, pints on pints on pints on pints. I think that's just objectively good poetry. (laughs) (laughs) You overflow my heart, spill into joyous days and nights forevermore, never apart. You didn't say overflow, you said overflow. I said overflow. Overflow. I was going to call you on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fucking honors English dickhead. A1 honors English dickhead. Uh, (laughs) Forevermore. uh, I said never apart, but it should have been near apart. Um, But. I might stick some music on that as well. Just really yeah, make I knew a big you were going to do that. Make yet. a big meal of it. Yeah. Speaking of meals. Ooh. Segway. So yeah, we're going to make a meal out of this episode. And we did in a way, because it's a long one. It is. This is a five course dining experience. Yeah, but worth it each course more succulent and delicious than the last that poem is a little moose bouche just to get as you're coming in the door of this podcast this is what they give you when they're taking your temperature at the door now <laughs> but you can't eat it because you're wearing a mask yeah exactly exactly just smash it in there um so th- like, this is a this is a, a longer one so we won't hang around too long if you're interested in more head stuff if this long bumper episode isn't enough what i politics for you you can head over to head stuff plus sign up become a member Five quid plus VAT, and you'll get some extra bonus episodes for your ears. Yes. And as well, even if you don't have a couple of quid to spare, that's fine. But just go ahead and tell everyone that you know that they have to listen to the show. Don't give them an option. Just tell them. Yeah, exactly. Especially this episode. Why wouldn't they want a combination of food and politics? Isn't that what anyone is looking for? (laughs) In life, in a lover. Forever. Uh, That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sorry, and, on that note, and on that note, uh, let's get into our episode that we did with the Spice Banks podcast, one of our Head Stuff podcast siblings. It was a good one, so let's listen. You're familiar with my work, my chicken work. I'm not, I'm not familiar with your chicken work. What's this? So back, in, I don't know, it's like nine years ago or something like that. I was, my parents have chickens at home. They have just like four chickens in a little coop. They live in the countryside. Yeah. And I was home visiting them and I was bored and I do photography kind of on the side sometimes and I'm a designer so I do a lot of Photoshop work. So I just went out in the back garden, I lay in the grass and I took a picture of them running and then I took a picture of me like pointing and then I photoshopped it together to make it look like I was riding on the back of those chickens charging. Oh nice. And then I I put it up on Reddit and it got to the front page of Reddit and it got like 1.6 million downloads and then it's taken on a life of its <laughs> no own. So way. still, if you like Google, I think chicken guy or guy riding chicken I've probably Google images, seen it and I'm just like, I just didn't realize it was you. That's all. That's, that's yeah, well, my most prolific bit of work. It's actually well just a few weeks, a few months ago, someone uh, who's starting a bar in Hong Kong emailed me to ask if they could use it in the alleyway leading to their little speakeasy bar. Richie, so you're on Redbubble. I can buy a greeting card with you on it. No way. Yeah, that's and that's I didn't. Oh my put god, that there. you're made. <laughs> will this become? Yeah. Will this be like? Will you become like Hugh Grant in About a Boy and just you know you'll live and you off just the royalties of, yeah, of your the royalties chicken. off of the chicken video? I don't see a penny of that. Oh. Someone took so some a, a day or two after I went on Reddit. A street artist took it and turned it into like a street stencil in Gloucestershire. Someone took that image of the street stencil in Gloucestershire and turned that into a t-shirt and then that into coasters and all that stuff Aww. and just started making a bunch, like selling and can you a not, bunch of those. Can you black. not claim rights yeah. to the visual like, credentials I think, or something? I he's on something. I was like, I, like absolutely. It's Hugh Grant and about a boy, right? You know, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how I start mm. doing that. Yeah, that's the that's the chicken stuff. But we're not here to talk about chicken stuff. Although we, maybe we will, because chicken is food. Chicken is food, right? And chicken is very political. Really? And chicken is seriously Politi- political, right? Like because very political. Remember the controversy about KFC, where, um, you know, like there was this whole thing where like people going, "Oh, KFC has bred this chicken with no bones." There was this like, big ball of feathers. Right. Yeah. I and they plucked it. And, and people were just going, oh my God, this is what KFC is doing. And I had like real? really intelligent, like, I mean, I'd say like more food producer, like friends, right? But really intelligent friends being like, this is what your country is doing. I was like, I really don't think that like KFC would be able to genetically read a boneless ball a chicken jelly that we harvest a chicken jelly (laughs) (laughs) just to make their fried chicken i should have worn my kfc jumper just for just for fun is that just a straight up kfc jumper or is it so it's the old kentucky fried chicken it basically um it was just as a journalist i was contacted by a pr company and they were like oh, do you like KFC? And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> mm. Yeah, sure. And they were like, oh, can we send you some, we've got an, we want to send you a gift. There's a new product. This was just in time for Christmas. They were doing like a, I think they were doing a, a, a chicken gravy to make it a bit more Christmassy in one of the burgers. And instead of sending the little thing of gravy, because it was in these little pots when you get it in the, in the restaurants, mm. but it, they didn't send me that or any food at all. They just sent me, um, KFC clothing. Was the clothing soaked in chicken gravy? Like if you squeezed it, would you get gravy? <laughs> it out had an essence of chicken gravy. Mm. Yeah, no, I, nothing. And I was just like, 
okay, can't really do anything with this apart from become a poster girl for a KFC. I guess also I had not really, I mean, again, like Chinese people love KFC. Um, growing up in America, we love KFC, but I had never realized the sort of the implications of KFC, right? Because fried chicken is a black African-American food. Mm. And so it's, you know, and so the like Colonel Sanders is essentially this Confederate. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like the like, Confederate, Confederate and, Southern yeah. guy with, you know, like the beard. And he's like, I'm going to sell you fried chicken. And everyone went, yay. Hi. But that's the complicated thing, though, because isn't fried chicken like a delicacy in Southeast Asia? It well? is. And it's like, but also, and Korea yeah, is I think too. that like Taiwanese it, and Taiwanese and it's, it's evolved in different ways. But if you are looking at it from the American standpoint, it's definitely rooted. Like you mm. can, you yeah. you got to say like the slaves brought it over. Yeah. And Colonel Sanders looks like the caricature of a plantation owner. Si- no, he is. He is. Sitting on his porch, a, sipping a mint he's julep. He's a colonel. He's, yeah. a colonel. he's a confederate colonel, like with, you know, his beard and like, you know, and he's, you know, in his Southern accent. Mm. And until somebody pointed out to me, I was, I never realized how wrong that was. And is. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my God. Right. And that's why also, and then I was like, oh, and then like, I'm like, some of my black friends were like, oh, that's why we eat Popeye's instead of uh. KFC. Mm. And KFC is not actually very big over here. I think- no, we have hillbillies. We have the Irish version yes, from Cork. Hillbillies. Oh my God. I love it. Is, that, is I mean, that a restaurant? Hillbilly? It's a, it's a restaurant. Hillbillies. It's a restaurant chain of fried chicken. It originated from Cork. I am proud to say I've been in the original. The Irish oh, South. Wow. It's just a that's little. Big praise. Big the, praise. And is the Irish is South. hillbilly like a term that you would use in Ireland or is that something no, that's been I mean, adopted? We we take we've taken it from America. Yeah. But yeah, you would call someone from the countryside a hillbilly. I was just but... gonna say I've definitely been called a hillbilly when I moved to Dublin. Yeah. yeah. Well we the cult is yeah. the Irish yeah. word for hillbillies. So they're kind of interesting. We should start we should start our own fried chicken restaurant called Colchis. Colchis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have gotten ahead of ourselves. We are talking too much without having actually introduced our guests. Yeah, we're gonna get you to like give us your credentials, but I feel like this opening is a good <laughs> as much a good as any. <laughs> But do you want to give us a little bit more of a formal introduction? We're here with our special guests, uh, the Spice Bags podcast, Blanca May and D. Do you want to do a little whip around just so people are familiar with your voices, know who's who, and just tell us a little bit about yourselves and about your podcast? Well, for anyone who doesn't know us, uh, Spice Bags, we're part of the Headstuff Network, and we are the podcast that um, focuses on international food in Ireland, kind of from an Irish perspective. But we basically... Uh, network and uh, bring together the kind of international community of voices um, here in Ireland and from interviews with uh, well-known people in the industry who actually work in the food industry or or who live in Ireland and yeah it's just a lot of fun because the three of us come from different backgrounds so we have we each have unique perspectives Um, I'm Irish I'm from Tipperary and live in Dublin a long time and have done I suppose, extensive traveling, but never lived um, abroad outside of Ireland, but have been working as a journalist and editor, focusing on food and drink here in Ireland for the last like 15 years. So that's me. And I met May and Blanca through my my work, and they asked me to join the podcast for season two. May is also an amazingly talented food writer. May, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your background? Hi, uh, yeah, I'm from New York. Um, I've lived in London and I've lived um, in Paris. Uh, and traveled a bit. Obviously, my family is Chinese. My stepdad's English. I've done writing. I've done food writing. Um, I've got something called the James Beard Award. And something, got, something called the James Beard Award. Yeah. <laughs> it's got so many awards. I can't keep track of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like two IACP 
awards and that was you know purely by chance and i landed in dublin because you know i met an irishman i married him and also i met d blanca like i think they sweetened the deal <laughs> and married them too <laughs> married them yeah, too we're married <laughs> and blanca I, uh, I'm from Spain, but I grew up in Latin America and I've lived in 12 different countries. So I'm really from nowhere and everywhere, but I am Española, me llamo Blanca, just in case people think it's Bianca. Um, I used to be a consultant. I used to work in IT. Uh, and then I went to cooking school in London and I've been working in the food industry for 17 years, different, doing different roles, uh, like food events. I've specialized in Spanish, uh, food. So I am a speaker about Spanish food, cheeses, uh, food and art, different things. And I'm studying a master's right now at TUD, which I'm loving. And I love um, just very, very geeky subjects. So I love politics and food. Um, I love marginal um, communities and what they eat. So I'm just very passionate about food. I've always been. But like I also will say, like for food nerds, like Blanca ran Books for Cooks. The kitchen in books or cooks in london which you know like food nerds would like be like oh my god she did what you know like, oh right yeah, so yeah. it's like it's the library that they exactly. go to oh, wow. right so and also she didn't go to a cooking school in london <laughs> she, she went to, went to cordon bleu the which cooking is like school. one of the most the cooking school you're the most humble person Blanca. oh my god <laughs> like we have to smack you sometimes um, anyway enough about spice bags but um we're very excited to be here yeah we're excited to have you and we're very glad to have you here we've, we've been wanting to do the the topic of the politics of food for ages because as you've mentioned food and politics despite the fact that we may not want to think about politics as we're munching on our tastiest food we yeah. have to be aware that the two of them are very highly um integrated and related everything from how governments deal with regulation of the food industry sustainability is a huge topic and then as you guys have alluded to as well um, as we talked about in our conversation with KFC, the idea of food and identity is huge too. So this is a podcast in 2021 and as such, we cannot talk without talking about the pandemic. So we thought maybe this would be a good place to start and maybe just get a little bit of info and context on what the pandemic has do- has been like for the food and restaurant industry. I would hazard and say maybe not good, but could you care to elaborate? <laughs> it's been devastating. I mean, I think if anyone hasn't known known that already, um, you only have to see it on the, you know, what will actually, you don't have to see it, it's just online. You just have to go out into your local town or village or wherever you are, or city, um, and see, you know, pubs that have been boarded up now for 12 months, more than 12 months. You can see restaurants that have been shut. You can see really innovative, interesting things happening, whether it's a food truck popping up, whether it's a coffee shop with loads of things out front turned into a grocery shop, whether it's markets. So there's been, so to, to talk about how the pandemic has affected the hospitality industry, first of all, just to say that I have some uh, information here. Um, as of March 24th, 2021, the year over year decline of seated diners in restaurants in Ireland compared to 2019 was a staggering 99.75%. So that's diners in restaurants. And that's obvious because we haven't been able to actually eat inside in restaurants. I think just barely before Christmas for a few weeks, we were allowed to. But other than that, we have Sometime in the summer as well. Yeah, and a time in the summer. So, And obviously measures that the government have tried to implement when they are open. You know, there's strict guidelines. The Restaurant Association of Ireland is working closely with 
the government and lobbying on the restaurant's behalf. But, you know, so is Fall to Ireland. There's a lot of bodies getting involved, but it's just very confusing time, I think, for hotels, restaurants, cafes, and a very frustrating time. Um, for example, um, I actually got married a month ago and we didn't know whether we were going to be able to we just wanted to do the smalls. It was six guests. We didn't, we just wanted to have lunch somewhere. You know, that was all we wanted to do, but we couldn't, we couldn't just go for lunch because you can't eat in cafes. You couldn't eat outdoors, but actually we found out that hotels are allowed to accept essential services. So we were able to actually dine in a, in a hotel in the end, but what it meant actually having to work with that hotel under the restrictions that they are having to work under themselves was really eye-opening. Um, so for example, we were restricted to one room. We had to stay confined within one room. They have laid off all of their staff, if you can imagine, bar managerial uh, and bare skeleton staff on reception, just to kind of keep that there's someone there to answer the phone and things like that, keep things going. So they don't have staff to man a restaurant, to wait on people, to you know cook a big feast in the kitchen, to uh, you know, give the same room service that they would be able to do. So it's a very strange thing for them. They can't just take staff on just because they get a booking in. You know, they've had to lay off all their staff there now. I was speaking to the general manager. They're now extremely concerned about the date for hotels to reopen with guests and guest houses and Airbnb and all that is in June. But now they're worried that all their, a lot of their staff have gone off and gotten jobs elsewhere or they've moved on or they don't want to come back into hospitality. So unfortunately, the employees that were there previously are actually not going to, we're going to lose that in the hospitality industry. So because everyone's just knows that it's such a volatile industry to work in, if something like this happens or some other type of crisis happens, it was the first one to kind of go. Mm. So is that lack of institutional knowledge is going to, you know, d degrade the quality over time potentially? Yeah, I think the government, you know, tried, I, I like to, I like to say that they tried their best in terms of, in terms of trying to come together with a plan that would, you know, benefit the industry in terms of when they were able to reopen, they allowed them. But I really feel that they fell short because they didn't, you know, when they were often having meetings about and creating these plans, they didn't get industry people involved to really hear their side of our suggestions, you know, for, for creating these plans. So I feel like there's been a lot of a lot of things that have fallen short in terms of support for the industry from the government. And also, you know, it's been devastating in terms of there's been a lot of closures. A lot of people are in debt now up to their eyes, you know, like they just had to, because obviously a lot of premises are rented um, a lot of people have mortgages um, you know, the expense of having to open a kitchen back up and start from scratch and then close it back down again. I mean, they were only open for three weeks before Christmas. Um, so all the cost that's involved with that, um, again, food spoilage, um, you know, and also a word that I said to me, I was going to mention, but one which which one which we don't uh, we don't use ourselves. But the, the words that the Fault Ireland and the government really tried to get the industry to um, adopt was pivot. And I mean, I've spoken to some restaurateurs and some chefs who have been like, don't use that word around me anymore because they've been pivoting and pivoting and adapting so much so that their heads are spinning like 
you know, restaurants became takeaways, like fine dining restaurants became Michelin restaurants became takeaways with delivery services. They had to master how to get food hot to people if it was takeaway and get a delivery service that worked. They had to buy packaging. They then meal boxes became the next pivot. Every, every restaurant started creating meal boxes that people would, you know, heat meat at home or they would cook at home. So their restaurant had to become a food production company. I mean, also, I was going to say, you know, for instance, you know, if I talk to my friends in Paris or in Hong Kong and like, you know, different lockdowns, right? Like, but restaurants are open, but then they're also like, everyone's wearing masks on the street. And there's, you know, if there's a declared curfew at 7 p.m., yeah, sure. Everyone observes a curfew. I feel like it's almost... I don't know whether it's like a national personality and like sort of, you know, like, okay, you know, like we will do these things. Mm. Are there any other examples of kind of best practices that maybe the Irish, like, I guess the implication being that the Irish government hasn't handled it very well. And as we're moving into reopening, as more and more people get vaccinated, we start to reopen. What kind of things can the government do to help this industry bounce back? Like, do you guys have one or two good examples of things that, that the industry says that will help? We need that. I think that actually Leo Varadkar has been saying that he's been dealing a lot with them um, or looking a lot to Israel and what's happening there, in a, not only for how they rolled out the vaccine, but also how they've managed reopening. Everyone's talking about this kind of green passport that they're looking at implementing. or yeah, they at the EU level. Yeah, there's hearsay about whether they will or not at the EU, EU level. Um, I, I personally think that, I mean, if you were... If you're vaccinated and you're allowed back in, if that gives you access to, if it allows businesses more reassurance at safety from a health and safety perspective that people coming in have had vaccinations, I think that that could really help. But how that's rolled out, when you look at how things have been rolled out here, and if it's done properly, it could also be used in a very negative way. And I'd worry about that as well, you know, in terms of just um, alienating people. And um, I, I think it could be difficult, just, you know. Yeah, I mean, there was just stuff like in Hong Kong, for instance, right? Like, and and I know that when I would talk to Irish restaurateurs that they were like, oh man, like Irish people would not. You know, you, you walk into a Hong Kong restaurant, you get your temperature te- yes. checked. Like you're masked, you have the gloves, like all this stuff. And like, and a lot of Irish people are like, oh, this is, you know, infringing on our human rights or whatever. And like, we feel uncomfortable, like getting our temperature checked and all this stuff. And it's like, so I feel like, you know, like I said, I think it's more national personality too, right? Like, you know, yes. Like if restaurants, you know, if, if Irish people were happy to do that, um, I think restaurants could also unroll in a much more sort of hmm. efficient manner. What about initiatives like the eat out to help out that that the UK brought in? I know that was problematic in terms of it was maybe too soon, but say impaired with a vaccination program, do you think like an actual incentive from the government, that kind of thing is the right cash direction? Incentive. Yeah, cash incentive from the government is the right direction. They did want to, I think it could be, they did want to bring that in here last year as well um, after it was rolled out in the UK. I think at the time initially, the negativity around it was that there wasn't an incentive from the government. They were asking restaurants to discount um, on food to try and get people out to eat, right? So it was like, you know, like a restaurant week or something. They were trying to get people, and, and just that the industry couldn't afford to discount. Um, so, but if, and I think that's the thing, if there needs to be financial support for reopening for, for, for the hospitality industry in general, 
the government needs to make sure that they have adequate financial support there. Um, I think that's fundamental. I do think that there needs to be campaigns around, like like May said, like around, you know, just simple things. Like I've been in buildings where you walk in and there's a temperature check straight away when you walk in. I'm totally fine with that. I think that that's absolutely a good thing. I think adequate booking systems that like, if you think about some of um, these pubs that are opening up from a rural perspective, that there's support for them maybe with um, technology. Like a lot of them may not have the technology um, in place already yeah. because, you know, we know Irish pubs, um, they're very much, some of them down the country, they're very much oh, yeah. um, older, the, old school, let's call it. You see the pub in, in my village in Donegal, he's still... Um, Duds up the till by writing it out and then sure. he's not going to have QR code stickers and integrated he's apps. Not yes. have QR codes. He'll <laughs> put his thumb on your on your forehead to figure out your temperature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like just like this, you know, just like <laughs> oh, you're grand, grand. yeah. And I mean, think that's the thing. So that there those so that it's not an uneven um, or you know it's not alienating kind of those kind of more rural settings. Um, that if they do something that they have to make sure that everyone can do it. And it's not just, you know, the ones who've been very quick to adapt, who have, who have the finances there to be able to install, as you've said, you know, QR menus or um, even something, an actual, um, what am I trying to say? Like a thing, like an actual phone even, or like iPad or something like on the table that you kind of order on. So you don't even have, you know, face to face with a waiter really until they're dropping your food down. Like some mm. people went down that route, this kind of contactless service, um, which in theory works okay. But I mean, you know, I just, I worry about it again. I worry about it not being fair to the entire industry. I don't. I I also don't want to sound like a a huge cheerleader, also, but I do think that like some restaurants have found like I I think some restaurateurs that I know, you know, before the pandemic were like, oh my gosh, we are in a creative rut, and again, not going yay pandemic, but like that sort of having this period has enabled some people to be able to think, you know, sort of mm, really interesting, yeah, creative, oh, no, like what where they want to go, and it's like it's fascinating because mm. like people are doing really interesting things. You know? I have had I mean, heard so many, like that's okay. Let's, let's just park and say that's the kind of negatives, but like there have been pivoting even to use that term again, there have been so many people who have like, honestly just completely stepped up their game and come out with the most innovative and interesting ways to, to dine at home, to get, to have their, their uh, loyal kind of customers to be able to experience their restaurant at home, whether or virtual events or food trucks, the amount of people who are kind of, you know, looking at doing something differently. Also, it's nice to see that the city councils are allowing people to, they're kind of, you know, they've slackened the permits um, in terms of where you can have outdoor space. And people are being really inventive with that as well. Um, I think we've, We've talked about the pandemic <laughs> and we have an awful lot more to get through. So on still on the topic here of, of government regulation, and we wanted to ask you guys generally, like how much should the government be getting involved in these in these different aspects of food? And the one we, we, we want to ask is um, the sugar tax in the UK. Are these kind of things good ways to try and change society for the better? Like, I guess specifically the sugar tax is trying to tackle obesity. Do they work or are there better ways? I'm going to take this sure, one, uh, being a mother of two children, um, one is 11, one is eight. Also, um, I worked for 
a couple of years in Chicago as a volunteer and as a worker in organizations that tackled um, childhood obesity and education around food. I think these these sugar tax, they're going in the right direction, but this is a drop in the ocean. At least uh, I'm speaking here more as a Mediterranean person. I do feel that um, it's, it's just tackling something that's not the problem. You know, the problem is not that we're drinking Coke or we're drinking drinks that have enormous amounts of sugar. The problem is that we have changed or way of eating to eat just, you know, we're, we're a very individualistic capital that we, we we're capitalist. So we've gotten accustomed to eating whatever we want. And we have families who sit down for dinner and people eat different things. So I would be, I'm happy with this tax. I think this is going in the right direction, but also I'm concerned that this is pushing people to drink diet Coke. You know, it's like, yeah, we're pushing people away from Full, full sugar Coke into, you know, sugar-free drinks. And is that what don't, we want? Don't knock Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah, me too. But it's, but it's you know, day. I have, <laughs> so it, this, is, this is what I'm saying. So I feel the government, and this is, I find, for example, the Irish government had a lot of like strength or tenacity to change smoking in Ireland. Like when I, I first started coming to Ireland in 1998 and everyone smoked and they had the tenacity to go and change it. And with sugar, I feel, and sugar and unhealthy eating and, you know, all these things, I feel that there, there, there's a reluctance in the government. For example, what kids eat at, at school, that we just let kids bring whatever to school. Like there, there's, you know, there's no, and, and I've discussed this with principals because I've done programs in schools, in low-income schools, in African-American communities and Latino communities in Chicago. And they were like, oh, we can't do that here. And you're like, why not? So I think my, my, I would love for the government to get more involved in that and in bringing the kids healthy food, because the problem is not that they're drinking Coke. The problem is that they have no food education and countries like Japan, I, I just read a paper about this. They have dedicated uh, food educators around the country. I think it's like 1,600 food educators across the country that go and teach children. And everyone in Japan eats the same food at school. Can you imagine that here? It would be uproar. People would be like, no, my kid doesn't eat potatoes. My kid doesn't eat tangerines. So I think that's what we need to do. And France does it. Some regions in Spain do, do, do it. I think as well, Italy does I think it. as well, Blanca, as well, the other thing is that in Ireland versus like some of those countries you messaged, I think is the, the marketing message that the, go the government's marketing message isn't strong enough as well. Like you said, they're, they're just like, oh, we'll just put a tax on sugar. But they're not telling people that you shouldn't drink as much Coke, for example. They're just saying, oh, you can drink as much as you want now because it's diet or, you know, but that there's a sugar tax yeah. on it. They're kind of... We're a society of overconsumers. Like we're, we, there's overconsumption, and I just don't feel like the messaging comes out enough about even if you eat full sugar foods, but just you know everything in moderation. You just have to be aware. There's education around how much sugar we should have on a daily basis, or weekly basis, or monthly basis. I, do, I think it's education and marketing around that messaging that's really missed really missed here we're still like agwan you'd be fine just have the low the low fat version or just have you know yeah. that kind of thing 
think also if you if you limit something like if you like especially with kits right if you for instance like say and i think this this was a disaster in the states right like if you go okay so we are now taking sugar and salt away from you know school lunches and what they do is then they're you know they go and then they like after school they load up on the cheetos and they drink like four grape sodas Mm. yeah you know, and so, you know, I think that, that, yeah, the denial then ends up with binging. Um, but what but I question, also think, sorry, oh. I was going to say the menus, I, I've been comparing menus from different school systems. And when you look at what a standard menu would be in a city like Madrid in a school versus what it would be in a school, like in, in a public school in London, you know, it, it's just, we're living in different planets and, and we have to, or France, you know, so menus, these school menus serve as healthy eating. Kids learn how to sit down, how to eat properly, how to use a spoon, how to use. And also they learn about the products from their country. So in Ireland, where we are obsessed with our products and we're always promoting producers, then, you know, these kids have no concept. Like ask my daughters the other day, they were like, Mom, what's Irish food? I'm confused. You know, so it could be a perfect setting to promote Irish products, to promote, you know, farming communities. But instead, when I saw the lunches that were coming into our school, like imagine you go to a parent day, whatever, a sports event, and you see what kids are eating. It's pretty mm. discouraging. And, and I would say not that different from what I saw in some places in America. So I think we need to act and we need to, I don't see like an urge. I don't see parents in my community getting outraged and saying, we need to stop this. And I just find it's kind of like, yeah, it's fine. You know? So I, I feel there's an mm. urgency and, and it's, and one interesting thing about the UK tax is that they want to invest a lot of this money from both the taxes and the levy. They want to invest it in sports. But here we go again, like the problem to me is not sports. It's not, it's the education that these kids are not receiving yeah. at home. So the six pack is made in the kitchen, not the gym. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's like a lot of social issues. The education is so often at the core of the solution rather than like band-aid, you know, short-term punitive measures to like negatively influence someone. It's like a much longer, slower process of education that leads to bigger systemic change than just it's somewhat easy to just slap a tax on something to go yeah don't do that but it's much harder to then like change the hearts and mind of a whole nation towards you know something much bigger uh, much bigger sea change and on that note i think something that fits that same description would be the topic of sustainability we alluded to it a little bit at the start of the show when we were talking about you know sustainability is is a very in vogue subject in politics right now, especially amongst our generation. And food plays a big part in that. But I think a lot of the time people don't think about it that way. We've talked in previous episodes about fashion and fashion's relations to, to sustainability and the things that people don't really think about. But food also falls in this category, maybe even more so. And I was wondering, do we want to talk a little bit about that? Is it true to say that food is one of the most important things in the world when it comes to sustainability? And maybe what are your thoughts on that? Well, just to start off by saying that um, I know we have the sustainability can be broken into so many different uh, areas and, and when it comes to food, but that food waste has been identified as um, one of the most effective ways to fight climate change. Mm. In fact, it's the third most effective action 
um, you know, in this, um, they've identified it as part of the Project Drawdown, which is an international group of experts on, on sustainability. Um, it's the third most effective action that we can take against climate change. I mean, that in itself is just mind blowing. You know, as I said already, we're, we're a society of over consumers. And part of that problem is that we're producing more food than we're actually using um, in terms of like, because we waste so much of it. Um, it's not even it's not even us as Irish people that are producing no. it. We're taking it from all over the world yes. and then just throwing it away. This is it. So the figures are that 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted each year globally. And that's just and it, me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say the Irish one uh, is 1 million tons of food waste. Jesus. So I'm sure we've all we've all contributed to that. And the, the so 55% of food waste in Ireland is generated by the processing sector and 45% by commercial and household sectors. So that's us. Like, and it's really interesting. I just had some kind of fun facts about food waste. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling these aren't going to be fun. These are going to be sad. <laughs> no. Well, could you guess what the, the number one, like what's the main food that's wasted in Ireland? Bread. It's up there. It's not the main one, but it's twenty percent of bread uh, and bakeries weighted. Yes, spuds are the number one vegetable oh. that is wasted in Ireland. Isn't I mean, that just for like- a country that literally frames itself as being a famine from potatoes, yeah, and now. I think what it is. Okay, can I just chip in? Actually, um, I think my Irish husband said that it's because there's a paranoia like about blood. like for me like if there's a spud there's like some eyes there's like mm. i will yes. use it and he's like no 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 you can't we want that. <laughs> and i suddenly realized i was like oh it's 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 a fam it's the famine talking if you if you don't chop out the eyes you know like you know there's the like some eyes or whatever like <laughs> that's a blight right he's like oh like you know like any like little no. discoloring he's, or anything he's just like a big that. sissy pants he's trying to use the famine as an excuse for being a big sissy <laughs> if we're talking about the famine if we're th- thinking that much about the famine then this is spitting in the eye of every famine survivor know, ever that right? we're just choking away all the spuds that we we can't eat interestingly yeah. enough when the famine happened the we ireland was was mainly growing and and eating one type of one type of potato which was the lumper uh, which is completely blight prone and they haven't been able to they a guy in the northern ireland potato grower he did bring it back for a while and it was available through marks and spencers but it just got he got completely um wiped out with blight again so the sequel <laughs> yeah just in antrim though yeah so but it was um so just to say salads almost 50 percent of what we buy we throw away meat and fish is 10 percent yogurts milk and dairy which we all treasure and promote in this country so much is 10 percent and bananas and apples are the two fruits that we waste the most um, I think that I remember hearing a statistic before, and it's basically that if you go to put it into perspective for people in Ireland, if you go shopping and you have three bags of shopping, you are essentially um, wasting a third. So uh, you can just on your way home from the shops, just accidentally dropping one of those bags Save and not time. picking it up. So what yeah, a waste that was of, just, what a waste of money. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. I mean, and that's just food waste. You know, there's so much in terms of food sustainability, but um, we do need to completely, there's a lot of a lot of promotion around food waste at the moment. There's a lot of work. There's even TV shows about families trying to save food, save food and things like that. I just think we really, as a small nation, an island, we should be able to really 
we should be able to work towards make a dent in our food waste. Um, but it, there are things that are, you know, contradicting our work or, or they're going against us, which is, again, it comes down to marketing. Like when you go into a supermarket, a supermarket is primed to just make us buy too much food. You know, you've got campaigns like two for one, buy one, get one free. That all needs to, leads to us buying too much and then not using it in time. Um, you know, that what's that called? Those super saver vegetables, like six for the six mm. for 30 cents or something. Like that's all getting us to buy stuff that we don't want, but also no one wins in that situation. Like no one's getting the proper price of something there. But but also I I I mean and Dee, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that like when I've observed certain kitchens that have been like incredibly good about food waste and you know, incredibly good about like, you know, cooking their own things. It's like, it's very much the woman stays at home. Like it's these old fashioned things where, you know, like, and I think it's mostly been sort of Asia and Italy, right? Like, but it's, you know, it's like the woman is, you know, counting the tomatoes and, you know, making this and like, and, and it's not that the fact that women now work or that we're the, you know, that two people are working in the household that equals to convenience thing but i do think that that, Mm. you know like i think that like this idea of convenience the idea you know all this stuff like you know we can't just go oh you know what like we need to like obviously like of course we should like adapt like 19th century principles but you know like yes and you know and don an apron and we've also never had to do without like we can just go to these shops where this food is just all like shiny and on these shelves just screaming out for us you know like we've never in our generation, we've never had to do without food. If you suddenly have to do without something or have to grow it yourself, you appreciate, you know, they, they, there's a term called food empathy, like, you know, that you have to, if you can grow food and see how much work is involved in it, then you will appreciate your, you'll have a connectivity to it. Um, and you won't, you won't, you won't want to waste. Like if you've grown something, you will not want to let it. No, and I absolutely, I totally, absolutely agree with it. And I've met amazing women, like in other countries, right. Who are doing this, but that's what they do. Right. Like they're basically gardening and cooking for their husband. And they don't. I want to just, one thing I wanted to talk about sustainability was, you know, fishing and we do do a lot of damage through what we eat. And the problem is that we can't agree what is the right diet and eat lancet which was a project that was done to see what science scientists thought about what our diet should be said or diet should be plant-based and they said we should be eating legumes and we should be eating nuts and people were up in arms they were so angry and farmers so we can't agree so no somebody needs to be come in and break that and say guys you know we're gonna start promoting these type of foods or we're gonna but I just feel that we're—is it the word uh, mm. gridlocked? Like where where people can't come to a decision. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves and realize that we need to eat more things like mm. legumes and nuts. And that seems to be, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, it seems to be the devil. When I talk about beans with my Irish family, they're like, oh, "I'm not eating that," you know. I so I say this is really good for the planet. This is really good. Like transportation wise, this is really good for your health, but mm. it doesn't matter, you know? So how do we solve that? And I think that's the role mm. of governments to, to kind of solve those problems. Again, but I feel, about. yeah. Education, but I also do think that sometimes there's dangerous when food people try to get too involved in politics. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I like the, the best example, I, again, 
huge respect for Alice Waters, um, who is based in Berkeley, California, has shaped niece. When she recommended to have a kitchen cabinet with, with the Obama administration, I was like, woman, like, <laughs> you know, you are, you are so up Wait, in your own she, head What space, was she suggesting? Right? You cannot... She wanted to do a kitchen cabinet, like a ministry. For the Obama, like, oh, it's like for the like, Obama administration. Like, she could like fix <laughs> not a like world problems. <laughs> like, yeah, not a national cabinet. She wanted to create a like, and it was like this implication. And I think this is partly sort of a little bit of Alice Waters and maybe a little bit of Michael Pollan and stuff. But it's like this implication, right? That like we can fix the world's problems by teaching people how to eat and garden. And like, you know, I'm like, no, no, no. Like it's a much more complicated issue. And sometimes, yes, you should chip in, but you should also realize when there are people who have been doing this, like other things, like, and you know, are much more expert and just- I think politics quiet. these days has gotten so partisan <laughs> and polarized, especially in the US that if someone comes out and says with Michelle and Barack Obama, I like vegetables. Some people will go, well, fuck it. I'm never eating another carrot again. Yeah. If Barack Obama is telling, uh, for the for also for the record, I'm a huge <laughs> Obama fan. But yes, <laughs> I think can I say something about more elabority? A, an Irish writer and creator of the first soap opera, she wrote these cookbooks, and in one of her cookbooks, she says, "Oh, the reason we don't eat a lot of vegetables in Ireland is because Protestants grow them, and we see it with you know." Um, like envious or mean eye. And that really surprised me. My in-laws are Protestants and they grow a lot of vegetables. So I was like, oh God, do. we're always trying to find <laughs> these differences, you know? But it's the same with the um, with fish and our relationship with fish in this country. Like people associated with Catholic guilt and being, you know, forced yeah. to eat fish on Wednesdays and Fridays. And, and um, well, as I a man know from, As a man from Killy Beggs, whose family have been reared on fishing for everyone else, I think that's a great thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think we've moved on to identity <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just wondering, do you guys think that there are insights that we can gain from a country's cuisine that can tell us about the national identity? I don't know which one of you guys want to start the ball rolling on that. May? I think I'll probably start the ball rolling. Um, I think, and again, like, I think I'm going to like sort of open, like open it up to another question, um, which is, you know, yeah, well for me, right. So I grew up, you know, I grew up from New York. So this idea of cultural identity was always a melting pot, right? It was Jewish, it was Italian, it was Chinese, it was, you know, it was like African-American. And so I never, so I never actually realized also that like I would be kind of allergic to, so um, I would say, and I hope it's okay to say, Korea and Ireland are the most nationalist countries about their food that I've ever encountered, right? Like it's like Ireland, absolutely. Korea and Ireland. Korea and Ireland, right? Because like everything in like both of these countries is like, this is the best, 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 right? Like, it's like, you are like, you, you tune onto TV and it's like, you know, obviously we're using Irish butter. We're using like this and it's best, best, best. And it's like, and I was like, I feel like that was also in Korea. Also like- It's you so didn't, true. My, you my Brazilian really... husband just said to me recently, he was like, I, we were watching something, one of those TV shows, um, chat shows, and there was someone demonstrating food, like an Irish chef, and they were banging on about Irish ingredients and local and everything we've been told to, you know, talk about and we've great pride in. And he said, you know, he said, ever since I moved here, I just noticed all Irish chefs talk about is just Irish food and supporting local mm. and buying Irish. And he was like, that's great, but like, don't you guys eat anything else? Kerry like, <laughs> Gold like, had that ad campaign where they said they gave you abs and fixed erectile dysfunction. So yeah, it's just a real... <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I said like, you know, if you like substituted like, you know, a cooking thing, you but know, and, like with American or like with French, it's like, you know, French butter is the best. Like, it's like, you know, like ah, we but do know the French, that the French are like on the, yeah. themselves, but they don't like, they don't do it in that obvious Maybe it's because way. they don't need it's to. It's implicit. It's implicit <laughs> yeah. in France. Yeah. They're implicit. like, well, why would anybody doubt it? We don't need to go on about it. You know that French is the best at X or Y. I think it's one thing we've discovered from doing the, the Spice Bags podcast is that the Irish, you know, identity with food is actually far more diverse than, than it is often, you know, wrote about in Irish media. You know, it's, it's just, it's not just... Um, it's not just as Irish as plain white Irish as we think, I think, you know. I think also it's, I mean, um, I think there's also sometimes, okay, and I love it, right? But I think also like there is, there is sometimes danger with like doing like food and nationhood. And, you know, even just remembering um, like I think in 1644 or 1650 or something, the Kangxi Emperor who was you know an outside conqueror conquered you know the Manchurians conquered China for 300 years and he wanted to demonstrate like the show's strength and like the unity of China by doing a banquet of a thousand dishes sounds great I would like to yeah oh, over four days I mean, and it's like it had like peacock's tongues Ooh, and, like, oh, I love left, like Do peacocks have tongues? not oh anymore God. they don't yeah. no, <laughs> not in <laughs> China <laughs> but you know when you you like you read something like that and you're like okay this is how it could go like food cultural identity and nationhood can go wrong <laughs> it's actually like myself and I'm, i probably shouldn't admit this but i will um my friend um kevin thornton and ernie wally and i uh, ernie wally was a restaurant critic in ireland and kevin thornton is an irish chef and we got into one of these like uh, conversations at a festival about i think it was i don't know it was about irish food history or something like this but we yeah. were talking about um so I got on to, I just had this bugbear about swans and, you know, about how swans are supposed to be the, they're just everywhere in Dublin for anyone who doesn't know along the canals, they're just everywhere. And they're just, I'm terrified of them. I was like, why doesn't anyone just like, why don't we eat swans? Like, I mean, I, you know, we have goose, we have, you know, duck. I was like, I really just, you know, want to know what a swan tastes like. And then someone, I think it was Ernie <laughs> or someone pointed out that they're supposed to be the queen's property. Um, still mm. in Ireland, um, we're not allowed to touch them. And so that feels we, like more of a reason, like to spite that makes, that them. I, know, right? I want I to mean, go and take resulted them. Resulted in Irish being like shooting swans, like left, right, and center. It's like Queen's yeah. property, which resulted so. in us plotting this like late night. Uh, how were we going to get us like capturing a swan <laughs> in a bag so that we could cook it and try and see what it tastes like? But we didn't actually follow through on it. I should point out. <laughs> wink, wink. But, um, yeah, of course you'd say that. I will say, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, my my friend who is an ornithologist actually did um, eat a swan for Valentine's Day, and he said it was not pleasant. Swans um, used I to be. I can't imagine anything that vicious could taste pleasant. Mm. Just I think it's mainly geese are of awful. Their diet. Yeah, it's like well, I like I, I like. It tastes great, but as a, as an animal, like, they're dicks. I like domestic. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh yeah, they're horrible. But yeah, he was saying it's. I think it's like the whole algae minnow. Mm like pond swampy diet like he was like oh yeah they're just floating around in shy canals i don't want to eat that (laughs) they look great because they served swan at the red wedding in game of thrones i think that's how it came about Mm. and that went really well so yeah yeah i know right what's the worst that could happen like you know exactly like why wouldn't you want to do that why wouldn't you want to make that your special day (laughs) 
Swan and so we that. were chatting a little bit there about uh, about Ireland and our national identity with food being quite nationalistic, which I never really thought about. But you're you're, you're right when you, you do hear a lot of <laughs> that is a kind of the narrative. But I guess there's also a perception outside of Ireland that Irish food ain't great. Like we're not known for Irish uh, dishes. Uh, yeah, Irish dishes isn't great. Like there's nothing exciting about it, particularly when compared with our European neighbours, say. That's what I think. <laughs> I think... So the history of history of Irish food would be like I used to, um, or I, I am just because of COVID, we haven't been doing it, but um, a guide for the Fab Food Trails in Dublin. And we would, you know, I would give tours around the city centre, food tours. And as part of the spiel, you know, you're talking to people, you would say that, you know, Ireland hasn't always had a history of being mm-hmm. renowned compared to our European um, neighbors, you know, when people think of Spain, they think of France, they think of their rich cuisines, but Ireland hasn't ever been renowned for that yet. When you would have American tourists in your group, they would always be like, oh, so excited to taste the, you know, Irish dishes that they have heard about so much or where generations of their family has spoken about. So um, I think that we're very, it, this thing of like, what is Irish cuisine or I think we definitely have an Irish cuisine, but I think we're very quick to throw it away for the next big thing in Irish cuisine. Like we're all very much at the moment, the reason there's so many chefs like we've spoken about and 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 journalists and everything, just promoting local, promoting Irish, I suppose, is that now for the first time in a, in a long time, it's culminated in this huge, huge community on a very small island of Irish producers Irish, um, you know, uh, chefs of, of an amazing standard. And that's really cool that we've come to that now, but I think, and I know May will touch on this, that we, we can't, you know, forget that we do have national dishes and they are based on more traditional, um, tastes. And, you know, we're very quick to kind of let go of those for the next big thing, I think in Irish food, um, which is sad, but you know, it only takes an Irish American to remind you of that. Um, yeah, dishes. I mean, I think in certain ways, I, I think that um, I, I talked to Dee a little bit about this. I think that, you know, when you travel around the world, there's pockets of immigrants who've been, you know, like whether it's Irish, I feel like Irish in San Francisco and in Boston. Um, but, you know, like I was in like a Latin American country and there's a pocket of Chinese people, there's Scottish people in Nova Scotia, and they're keeping the, the they're keeping sort of generations of tradition alive in a way that their own countries like have forgotten mm. about. Um, and I think that, you know, um, and so, um, and I do think in a weird way, right? Like what we think about is Irish cuisine. It is, it's still like, you know, it's, it's still, it's English derived. It's, there's still a lot of potatoes. It's not, you know, it's not glamorous, but it's hearty. And it's, you know, it's yeah. also, it's very reflective of, you know, like James Joyce or Connor McPherson, like, like my brother was really into the playwright Connor McPherson. He was like, all right, we're going to go. We're going to get a shot. We're going to do like the long and a short and we're going to have a pie, you know, like, and pie. that, you know, that whole thing that makes it, you know, it's the food maybe itself is, I mean, it's great. I love the food, but I think it's, there's a lyricism and there's a mem- like it's, it's encapsulated with like, you dress it up with lyricism of memory and, and it becomes so much better. And I hope that, I hope that, while Ireland right now is exploring like all this new culinary terrain, I hope that that doesn't go away. Mm. Yeah. I think that's what it is, is that for a long time, you know, we're, we're, and I know uh, Blanca, you said this to me once and I've always just thought about it is that 
you know, our our journey with immigration is so young here in Ireland. And, you know, so we're every time a new restaurant opens up that's, you know, African or Mexican or something or Taiwanese, everyone's just like, oh, my God, there's this new place. We have to try it. And they have this stuff that we've never tasted before. We've only tasted it when we've traveled. And we're all so excited about other world cuisines that we're so quick to kind of forget about our own. But yes, when you do surveys and you speak to people to home cooks and what they cook every day, they are still going back to the traditional Irish dishes and they are potato based. They are meat based. They are vegetable. You know, it is, meat that is veg. there and that the meat and, and it lives, and, but it lives, but it lives on in history. It lives on in literature. It, yeah. Like, but, it's just, but also something that's so dreamy, yeah. you know, but like, also can I say that cuisines evolve very quickly and that the food that we have in Spain now is not the food that you had in Spain in the seventies. True. There's fabulous documentaries that you can see on the online in the Spanish network TV. And, you know, food has changed so much in mm. Spain. So who knows 40 years from now what Irish food will be like. But I do feel that there's a lot of wonderful products. There's wonderful like foraging products. But I do find that then even though there's all these magnificent products, then Irish people end up eating poke. And it's like, why are you eating poke? Like, who cares about how? Like, I find that a little bit bewildering. So I would love for people to do more Irish and be more like in your face. Like, I love all the sweet products. And when I moved here and I saw all the wonderful things that people bake or the jams that in Spain, like in Spain, the oven is basically where you put your pans because people <laughs> like there's no tradition of baking in Spain. Like if anything, our sweets were always fried. So Ireland has the, all that richness, like rhubarb. I was like in love with rhubarb when I came here, but then you don't see, you know, I'd love to see a baker that was just like, I'm, I'm not doing like kimchi croissants, you know, just yeah. own it up, guys. I fucking love a kimchi I croissant. Love, <laughs> I think with products, there's an ownership, but with restaurants, it's kind of like, mm, I'm, like I'm going to do burgers. I'm like, what? No. Yeah. To finish us off, um, you guys, I believe, have prepared a little game, little fun, little trivia section. You have looked up some famous historical and political figures and figured out Ooh. what their favorite foods yeah. are. And I'm actually, I can't wait for this. <laughs> so who do, who do we have? Okay. So I have a, I have a, I have a list. Um, so I'm just going to, um, so I think like, um, I was obsessed. I've been obsessed with Augustus. who was like the first like emperor of Rome. And I love like how sort of at the end of his life, all he would eat were the figs that he had picked himself and the milk that he had, milked from his own goat but I think it was also possibly because he thought his aunt uh his wife was going to poison him um but I I do find there's like an interesting thing between um dictators and really austere eating habits um so you have you know Augustus you have Caesar who also ate sparely didn't drink Stalin um again like Stalin you think of as like Russia but he's actually from Georgia and so his favorite dish which is so I mean, I have a really conflicted, like, I don't like Stalin, but his favorite dish is this, like, lamb and aubergine and coriander. You know, it's, it's, it's Ooh, Georgia. That's bougie. It's so, yeah, it's so <laughs> good. It's like, because Georgian cooking, right? It's like, it's got, like, a little bit of Asia, a little bit of Russia, a little bit of Middle East. Ooh, and that was his, and Stalin. he also, yeah, and he also <laughs> didn't drink. Like, he would have, like, maybe one glass of wine, but then 
all of his, you know, and, you know, like his boys, uh, you know, all of his, all of his boys, he would make them drink shots of vodka. Right. And so, you know, so he would be able to keep control over the situation, like get them to confess secrets. God, it's a Stalin um, house party sounds pretty fucking great. Uh, no, 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 because then you could be shot. And you like you the say the wrong day. thing and you don't <laughs> wake you up. You say the wrong thing. Yeah, what a way to exactly. go. Full alarm you know, and like, and he's, like, he's like, have more vodka. And you're like, okay, I'll confess that, you know, like my, my, my mother was a Jewish doctor. And it's like, you're shot. Um, Mao, of course, was a huge, he was really into his food. Um, so big man. From, big man. Uh, and he has, I think China still has like the, the red braised, pork belly is still like called like chairman Mao. pork belly Ew. um yeah and then okay so this so again um obviously hitler was a ve- vegetarian obviously yeah. Yeah. i love the way um, you said obviously obviously hitler obviously. was vegetarian obviously, yeah obviously i would have totally and thought then, he was a carnivore oh yeah, no 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 so yeah so also didn't drink them together yeah also didn't drink right so teetotaler vegetarian um bill clinton okay so back to my country so bill clinton again like i think he like kind of got everyone's adoration because he was fried chicken donuts i was gonna say got had a hard attack and then now he's vegan and so like it's you know kind of affected i mean there's other things that have now affected like clinton profile but um and i was a huge clinton worshiper but like but yeah but like with his fried chicken and donuts and i was saying like I was like with the Obamas, like they definitely promoted this healthy eating thing, but then you had five guys, right? Like that was the whole thing. Like when, you know, when, when Barack and Michelle were having a rotten day, they would go to five guys and they would have like this specific burger. And this is, you know, and that I think was contrasted to Trump. Again, Trump doesn't drink the Obamas do. <laughs> like Obama will have like a glass of Chambertin. Trump is like Diet Coke man, um, and he—I think he was—he's into Big Macs. Yeah, he loves so, fast so food. Just like you just, exactly, it's like it's like whether or not, like for instance, like if there was a politician like that I really liked who loved Big Macs and Diet Coke, I'm sure that I could, I could work that in in a flattering way. I hate Trump, and I'm like, yes, you orange Cheeto-haired man who <laughs> is, you know, whatever. Like you live on Big Macs and Diet Coke. I don't really have any amazing, um, well, I mean, I have one really, really fun fact about uh, Charles Haughey. Um, former former Taoiseach. Taoiseach. Yeah. Yeah. Former Taoiseach <laughs> and hero. Fianna Fáil leader. Um, is that the the sh- a former chef in the doll came out um, in an interview with Ryan Tuberty on Irish radio here and admitted that Charles Haughey used to love to have his grapes polished. <laughs> <laughs> By who? Apparently, like quote unquote, he liked his grapes shiny. But isn't this isn't Is this a euphemism? euphemism? Aren't we that sounds euphemism? like yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that just you know, doesn't he go around the back it, and get his grapes polished there? You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Exactly. maybe and so. didn't Charlie also like Charlie was also like he was he there was all of those sort of I don't know Celtic tiger sort of you know the there was an Italian restaurant like they were all called was, like or like you know like things like that and charlie would like you know have these lunches and spend thousands and thousands yeah he was a bastard Um, he was spending thousands of corrupt money that he got off everyone else yeah (laughs) and our president michael d higgins (gasps) has inspired the best tea cozies in the world i've got one i gave one oh 
Oh, I gave one to Richie on her live show, her first live I've show. I've got downstairs. Every Christmas, I put them on top of my Christmas tree. I'm jealous. I really want one. They're the best. They're so cool. You just, yeah. You wear them and you ultimately just feel cozy and warm. Oh. Yeah. Cute. <laughs> what a cute note to end things on. Guys, I have one more, oh, guys. Go ahead. One thing, and this is some Spanish vocabulary also. Oh. So in Spain, politicians, when they want to, you know, project this image that they're very healthy, it's always a la plancha. You know what that means? It's basically when you just have a pan and you just cook your fish or your chicken with very little oil, mm. like a little bit, and then you flip it over. And a lot of restaurant kitchens have just what is a plancha, which is a, a like a, a flat grill. Yeah? yeah. So that's, you know, if you want to attract some ladies and you're just like, oh, what's your diet? Like, oh, I eat everything a la plancha. So polit- politicians, you always mm-hmm. hear them, especially young. They're like, his diet is always that fish a la plancha so anyway why is that attractive it's i'm just Makes you sound like a boring they, nerd because in spain no because in spain <laughs> the plancha guys the plancha is when you go to a bar for tapas you have this you know when you go to tepanyaki yeah so yeah. in spain the bars have that yeah i've been i've been like, to one or so two so spain, amazing yeah so in spain that's kind of like you're healthy you're not like deep fried so it's just a code word for health. Like I have very skinny friends in Madrid, but I'm talking about you and she'll always eat a la plancha. So in Spain, what I'm saying is that that's code word for healthy and politicians, models use that three, those three words a lot. Mm. No, I mean, I love stuff a la plancha, but I would also say that for me, it's like not actually that, like if somebody was hitting on me and they're like, I'm really healthy. And like, <laughs> I, you know, like, and I work out and like, and I'm like, I drink carrot juice. And, you know, like, I'm like, oh, that's kind of like, like yeah, so do you want to do it a la plancha? <laughs> <laughs> Just lay me down and flip me over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be your new thing. I oh want to a la plancha. A la plancha. Oh. Richie, <laughs> grapes Richie was chicken, man. Blanca is <laughs> madam a la plancha. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my oh, god. Amazing. Maybe that's like food sexual positions. That's what that is. Oh, we you know? should Oh, yeah. we missed a trick. Oh, oh, next episode. Definitely. Next episode. But I think yeah, like you got to polish the grapes. <laughs> you you got to polish too. the grapes. If you want to yeah. al- if you want to outplant you, you got to polish those grapes. <laughs> Uh, what a what a lovely note to end things on, guys! Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. Actually, we do have to we do have to do one thing. So, thank you for listener for staying this long. This has been a good long episode, but also just mm. we haven't explained what a spice bag is, and we have a lot of listeners that oh. are not from Ireland. So it wouldn't be politically correct to without doing that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it would just be wrong yeah. on all levels. <laughs> so, could one of you find people please explain to us what a spice bag is? Me, <laughs> yeah, because you um, no, just because you always explain it the best. <laughs> Don't explain it the best. No, it is. Um, I mean, it's an Irish Chinese. It's a it's a creation of the Irish Chinese takeaway, and it's chips, and there's sometimes chicken balls, and there's like bits of meat, and it's tossed with um a like a spice mixture that can have peppers, um it can have cumin, it can have like hot pepper, um and um and often like so originally it used to be like the Irish drunk snack like because only the Chinese takeaway would be available like if you're like staggering home at like one o'clock in the morning.
but now people have refined it and it's delicious. Yeah. Are you guys fans considering it's the namesake for, of your podcast? Do you of enjoy Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Huge. Well, also, but you always have to, like, you have to remain hydrated. It's one of those things, like, I'd like to challenge anyone to eat a spice bags without licking their lips or drinking anything. You know, the way there was mm. that donut challenge. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like yeah. people to do oh, that. Yeah. It's very, it is very, um, because the powder, the dust on the, on the chips and everything, it is quite, yeah, you do need to drink a lot, which, I mean, which is funny. Cause it was the thing you ate after drinking a lot. After mm. drinking. So, but like, you but, just, you just, I, yeah. Like I ate my first spice bag in the afternoon with my Chinese American cousin. <laughs> and we then went to see the bog man and we had not like, had any water or something. And so like, he was like watching, like he was like looking at the bog man. We're like looking at basically Irish mummies. And the two of us going, we just want five diet cokes right now. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, it's the, it's the most famous fusion dish we think in Ireland. So the most popular fusion. People don't even realizing they're eating a a, a cultural, technical, amazing piece of fusion. They just get it for a fiver and think it's amazing because it is. And Richie, it's criminal that you've never had one. I was about to, that's what I was going to end the podcast oh on. My oh my because God. Because I didn't want to sit down because now this is what's going to happen. <laughs> I wanted to. Oh my God. I, oh, Steve, you threw me under the bus. I can't believe we actually spoke to you. Oh my it's God. A, it's my dirty <laughs> little secret. <laughs> oh no. So I feel like, let me justify myself for a minute. I feel, so I left Ireland in 2013, I think. And I feel like that was when it was starting to become more in vogue. Yeah, they're new. refined, as you say. And like back when, back in my day when I was there, it was all like three and one. So when I go back and I want something comforting and greasy after I've been drinking, I go to my old pal three and one. This the spice bag is like some new exotic thing that I'm just too scared of. So you should, um, you can actually get spice bag seasoning and do, make it at home as well. We're gonna so. mail it to you. So yeah, we're just loose in an envelope. That would be great. I look forward to that. Just like a, uh, I look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. Again, we there's so much stuff we could have talked about that we didn't talk about this episode. So people should really check you guys out. Where can they find you? So we are part of the Headstuff Network. You can find us on their website. Um, you can also find, we have our own website as well, spicebags.ie, which you can check us out. All our episodes and back catalog are there or wherever you access your podcast from normally. And we, we'll put links to you guys on Twitter and Instagram into the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone has any suggestions for you know, politically fueled episodes for our season three, which we're going to be starting to record soon. We'd love to hear from them. Exciting. Thanks so much, guys. That was absolutely fantastic. I'm actually... Yeah, cheers. I might. I was going to go for Thank pizza you. tonight, but I might have to get a spice bag. I know. <laughs> just, just remember to hydrate. hydrate yeah. All I can say is hydrate. <laughs> flip over when I'm halfway done. <laughs> <laughs> This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 